Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most high-profile, the most gruesome, the most heinous homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. For this season, season five, the focus is on sick, twisted, pedophile, rapist, or sex-related type of homicides. Now, all of these types of homicides that occurred in Maryland, that's what the focus is on. Now, as I stated in uh, the last episode, the state of Maryland, um, these, they have so many of these type of homicides, like that this is just part one. You know, part two will be featured later. So, you know, with all that being said, let's just get right into it. I mean, whew, on this episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, the brutal rape and murder of seven-year-old Tanisha Hope Allen is profiled. And as in each episode, an unsolved homicide that needs attention, they will also be profiled. And for this episode's, the unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 21-year-old Anna Isabel Racine. Okay. I'm going to get right into it now. <sighs> a lot of y'all been wondering, like, why am I so crazy? Like, wh <laughs> why am I so insane? Like, why do I, why am I so fascinated with true crime? Why am I always into murders, into blood, into gore, you know, cause of death and stuff like that? You know, what's with the whole stint with the whole crime scene cleanup that I used to do? And why am I so invested into Merlin true crime? You know, well, homicides in particular. Why am I so into, you know, murders and stuff like that? You know, the short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I was born that way. You know, but no, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. You know, that was a joke. I mean, I guess because... Um, honestly, all jokes aside, I guess because growing up in West Baltimore City, especially in the 90s, I was exposed to, like, both drugs and violence on a constant and consistent base basis. I'm just going to explain it the best way I can. I mean, yeah, I spent some time, you know, from when I was, like, 14 to 16 or 17, I, I kind of grew up in Owens Mills in the county a little bit, and then in Ricestown, Maryland, you know, but before I hit 18, after, you know, between 14, 16, 17, after that, I moved straight from Ricestown, Ricestown, Maryland, the comfort and quiet of the suburbs of Ricestown, Maryland, back in the 90s, I should say, I moved straight from Ricestown to Lexington Terrace High Rise Projects. And the switch was a, a complete culture shock that I can still remember, like, as an adult. I mean, when I moved to the projects, Lexington Terrace, I mean, woo, in the 90s? Like, this had to have been, like, 1989-90. Man, I mean, I was not ready. I mean, I remember the first time I heard gunshots. You know, pow, pow, pow. I woke up, like, right out, straight out, like, in the middle of my sleep. My sister told me, she was like, you know what? You get used to it. 
my older sisters had already been, you know, living in the project. So they kind of like put me onto it and kind of like warned me of what I was to expect from coming from Town, Maryland. You know, it was just a complete culture shock. I mean, the drugs, the, the violence, the fights, the all the projects being open and live all hours of the night. I mean, anyway, I say all of that because it leads me into the homicide that I'm going to profile for this episode because I clearly, clearly remember when it happened. And this homicide in particular, when people ask me why I got into true crime, you know, the criminal justice system and all of that, it was because of this particular homicide right here. I mean, because... Not only had I lived in the projects, I mean, not only had I lived in the projects, like, off and on when this happened, you know, my sister lived on the first floor, and my other sister lived in, like, the homes, which was, like, I think that was either right across the street or literally, like, right around the corner. But not only did I live there, but I knew both of these killers. And when I say they seem normal to me, when this happened... I, I was like, I was done. I said, you know, I have to get into the mind of a killer because I was fooled. I definitely didn't see this coming. I had to, I mean, I, I just, I, for some reason, I just, I had to know more because I was completely floored. Lexington Terrace High Rise Projects, Building 700, 14th Floor. Seven-year-old Tanisha Hope Allen slept in her bed like normal seven-year-olds do at night. You know, Tanisha's 26-year-old mother, like a lot of mothers in the projects back then, she struggled with a serious addiction to heroin and crack cocaine. And like a lot of women did back then in the projects, she sold her body to feed that addiction. But on the night of December the 18th, 1992, just a week before Christmas, Tanisha's mother, her only concern was getting her next blast. That's it. And when two of her regular clients came to her door that night to get serviced, instead of wanting her, not this night, not tonight, tonight they wanted something different. Tonight, these dealers wanted her seven-year-old daughter. See, this case fucked my head up so bad, it's hard to even talk about it, like, to this day. I mean, this is... mm. 19-year-old William Holland, Holland, we called him Billy, and his 16-year-old brother, Lamel Dixon, they didn't want the 26-year-old mother, like, this time. They didn't want her because, I mean, I guess she was a mother of three or whatever, but the the pull, the lure, the craving of crack and dope or whatever, that must be a motherfucker because Tanisha's mother, she turned a blind eye and let them both gang rape her daughter for who knows how long. I don't even, I, I, I can't even imagine the seven-year-old, like, what she endured, the sexual assault that grown women can't handle. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine the screaming. I can't imagine the turmoil. I, I, I can't imagine the horror of what she must have went through. I can't imagine the trauma. And this is a child, I mean, knowing that her mother was there. 
knowing that her mother knew what was happening to her and basically allowing it to happen. I can't even imagine what she must have been thinking, what she went through. Like, who the fuck even know if this was even the first time? You see, but this is how God works. You know, while William and Lamel was raping this child, there was a knock on the front door. You see, in the projects, it was like, they didn't have like regular morning hours, like nine to five, you know, they like working hours. You know, shit was always popping off because like all hours of the night, like in, in the projects, I mean, it was always, first of all, it was set up like tiers, like a prison. It was so many units on each tier, basically. I mean, it was, it was, so it was nothing for somebody to just come to somebody's door at whatever time needing or wanting something you know, and like I said, a lot of people develop drug addictions just by living all crammed up like that in the projects. So somebody was always like knocking on somebody's door. And on this night, it wasn't no exception. Turns out it was Tanisha's mother's friend who was at the door and she wanted her independence card back that she had let Tanisha's mother borrow. Tanisha's mother came to the door and she just cracked it open a little bit. And then she let her friend in the apartment after her friend told her why she wasn't there. I mean, that's a lot of comfort. You knew what was going on, but yet and still you let your friend in the house. Anyway, Tanisha's mother walked off to look for the card. And her friend, what she saw, she would be traumatized by what she saw. You know, she saw with her own eyes a 19-year-old man on top of a 7-year-old child lying on the floor and with her own eyes she saw a 16 year old sitting on the living room couch naked from the waist down and after she saw that you man fuck the card she ran out of the apartment she ain't say shit to nobody i mean she kept that shit to herself the next morning around 8 a.m tanisha's mother called the baltimore city's police department and told them that somebody had broken in her home attacked her daughter all without her knowledge and now she couldn't wake her daughter up when the police arrived at the apartment on the 14th floor they found the seven-year-old lying face down on the floor wearing only a blue t-shirt that had been pulled up to her chest the little girl was pronounced dead at the scene her mother was questioned immediately and she claimed to not see or hear anything she had no idea what the fuck happened. An autopsy on the child later determined that she had been brutally raped, sodomized, and ultimately smothered to death by an unknown object. Probably from her face being pushed or shoved into the floor when somebody's fucking monster is freaking sodomizing you. I mean, when the investigators found this out... They charged Tanisha's mother with first-degree murder. Fuck that. They was like, we're going to charge somebody because your story sounds fucked up. And that's, like, that's at an understatement. Anyway, I mean, Tanisha's mother still didn't say shit. And the investigators had no choice but to release her because they had no real evidence to charge her with anything. The Department of Social Service, they also smelled something fishy. And they was like... They, they stepped in, they took no chances, and snatched up Tanisha's mother's two other kids, and just because they could. 
they did all of that because they was just like something just don't sound right. I mean, there was a dead child that had been smothered and raped in her in her apartment, and she didn't hear nothing. the The case just sat for a minute and like nothing happened. But like I tell you, God has a way of appearing when you least expect Him, and what you do in the dark, God always finds a way to reveal it to the light. And what do you expect? Did you really think that they was going to get away with raping a 70-year-old girl in Baltimore City? I mean, really. We might have a share of homicides and murders and killers and stuff like that. But these kind of cases usually get solved. And, you know, when you murder a child they kind of in Baltimore, they kind of usually get solved right away. I mean, detectives don't usually play about that. The Anyway, the friend, like the one who came to get her independence card back, she couldn't take it no more. She probably had nightmares. She was haunted by her own demons. Either way, seven months after Tanisha was raped and killed on July the 10th, 1993, Tanisha's mother's friend finally reported to the detectives what she had seen on that fateful night shortly after midnight. She told the detectives, in her own words, she said she cracked open the door just a little bit. She asked me what was wrong. I told her I needed my independence card. And when she opened the door to let her in the apartment, Tanisha's mother walked off to get the card. She told the detectives that she looked down the hallway and saw what she saw. She told them that she didn't come forward with what she had known like sooner because both William and Lamel had broken into her home and they threatened to kill her if she said anything. She said although she was terrified for herself and for her own kids, she couldn't take the mental anguish and she couldn't take the image of seeing this little girl being raped. In her own words, she said, I can't keep going like this. It's beating me up inside. I want my life back. I, I, I can't keep running. That's what she told the detectives. I mean, she knew she had to come forward. She knew she had to do the right thing and tell the detectives what she knew. And because she told the detectives this, on July 30th, 1993, at 5.40 a.m., both William and LaMelle were arrested at their apartment on the 11th floor of the same building where they killed the seven-year-old child. Charged as adults with first-degree murder and first-degree rape, they both said they had no idea what the detectives were talking about. <laughs> Held without bail, they both swore they were innocent and decided to take this shit to trial. I mean, the prosecution killed them on the stand because even their own public defenders didn't give a shit what happened to them and they let Lamel get on the stand in his own defense. When the prosecutor asked Lamel how did his semen get into Tanisha's body, all his dumbass could say was, I have no idea. William tried to blame everything on his younger brother and said that he knew that Lamel went to the, the apartment, but he thought that he went there to have sex with Tanisha's mother in exchange for heroin and crack cocaine. He ain't know nothing about some little girl. And he also didn't know how his DNA got in Tanisha's body. Dumbfounded. The prosecutors put on their star witness on the stand, and she basically sealed both of their fates. She emphasized again what she had seen in the apartment. The lead detective in the case also testified saying, make no mistake about it, this case would have never gone 
had she not willfully or not fully given them up. After she gave them up, they were indicted a day later. Oh, and Tanisha's mother, whew, the prosecutor cut her a new one, reamed her on a stand, asking her, did you hear? Did you hear anything at all? Did you hear your daughter screaming? All Tanisha's mother could say was no. I slept and the next morning I found her face down on the floor. I ran back and said something's wrong with Hope. She literally not only, she, she literally got on that stand and told that court that she didn't hear a fucking sound as her freaking child was being raped less than 10 feet away from her while she slept in her own bed. Oh my God, unbelievable. I mean, the medical examiner testified naming all of Tanisha's injuries from sexual assault to oral and anal sodomy. The medical examiner told the court that there was no way, absolutely no way at all, that that child did not scream, that she did not yell out in pain from what was happening to her and all the stuff that she suffered. There was no way at all. She had to at least try to scream. The prosecutor summed it up by in, in his closing argument when he said, these men went into that apartment to take take turns with that little girl. They silenced her after they took advantage of her. And for Tanisha's mother, that has to be something, has to be something that she's hiding. She still won't tell. <sighs> In January of 1995, a Baltimore City jury deliberated for a measly two hours before finding both William and Lamel guilty of both charges, first degree murder and first degree rape. At their sentencing hearing, two months later, on March the 8th, 1995, the judge didn't hold back, saying, It was the most heinous act this court has seen prosecuted in a long time. I have no way of considering how one human being or two human beings could conceivably do such, such a thing. Neither should ever be free to ravage in society, and my sentence is intended to see that that doesn't happen. So he sentenced Lamel to life without the possibility for parole for first degree murder and two concurrent life sentences for first degree rape and first degree sex offense and another 10 years for sodomy. William, now 21, he received a sentence of life without the possibility for parole for first degree murder and a concurrent 30 year sentence for second degree rape. Neither one of them said a word at their sentencing hearing, but their public defender said that they both still are maintaining their innocence. Oh, and the judge, they had special words for Tanisha's mother too. He said the person who may have principally been responsible is not before the court. She didn't even come to court to even see what sentence they even, mm. Both William and Lamel's attorney agreed added. Tanisha's mother influence should not go unmentioned. Her role in this whole incident is intriguing. How can this case not be notorious in, murder, in, in Maryland? If you're really into true crime, especially into true crime in the state of Maryland, and you don't remember this case, then you're not really from Baltimore. You're not really into true crime. I mean, at the time I was a CO, I was a correctional officer, and... Right after these two dudes got convicted, my father was killed like a month right after this. 
I mean, I immediately immersed myself into true crime because of this case. Because I knew, like I said, I knew both of them personally. And I had written, I, I've written to, I, actually to tell you the truth, after this happened, I, I wrote to both of them. And Lamel has never responded, but William has responded over the years or whatever. And he still maintains his innocence, still says he don't know what happened, blah, blah, blah. And he has nothing to do with anything. He said he has written to the Innocence Project a bunch of times, and each time they have rejected him, can I help him, blah, blah, blah. Um, no, I can't. I never really responded because, for one thing, look, I don't, I can't really, if you're not going to be truthful about what really happened, you know, there's, we have no conversation. You know, I can't work with you if you're not being truthful, so I don't respond. This case still fucks with me to this day. I mean, do crack really make you do that? Like, you pimped out your own daughter? And I know that was in the 90s, and millennials nowadays are going to make excuses and say, oh, well, she had drug addiction. You don't know, uh, you know, you didn't walk in her shoes. You don't know what she was struggling with, and you don't know the mind of an addict, and let's not blame her, and we, you know, she should have gotten, you know, there's treatment for that, blah, blah, blah. Y'all, wait a minute, hold up. And it's like, you don't get it. I can't understand what type of disease or what type of addiction would make you pimp out your seven-year-old daughter. Knowingly and willingly. That kind of messed with my head to this day. I mean, whew. I hear that, you know, they spent, these two inmates, or two defendants, they spent a lot of time in protective custody. I do, I do know that, like, every time they got released, I heard that every time they got released in general population, they got beat up or whatever, and they always had to go into protective custody because of this, the, no, the notoriety of this case, that people still remember this. Some people still remember this. I mean, I lived in, this happened in the 700 building. I lived, my sister, me and my sister and I lived on the first floor, and this happened on the 14th floor. And the whole building was just shook because we knew them, and we were like, What? It, it was just, wow, you know. And my other sister, like I said, she lived in the Pohomes, and, which was either across the street or right around the corner from this. And when this happened, we were just shook. You know, I had a two-year-old daughter that Billy knew. Ugh, and it was just like, what a mess. So everybody was shocked. I mean, huh, the projects, man. This was, It was a lot of shit that was going down like this. and But this right here... This was something that was really notorious in Maryland. And if you really are from Maryland and you really don't remember this case, wow, I mean, I'm a little shocked because this is the one that really had me interested in true crime and really had me wanting to be like Jodie Foster was in Silence of the Lamb and really just getting face-to-face -face into the mind of criminals and understanding how you can be fooled and stuff like that. I mean, oh. Yeah, this is one that was will always be infamous in Maryland. Going to sodomize and, and rape a seven-year-old girl to death. And then a mother going to act like she didn't hear this. Wow. That one right there, mm, she going to have to live with that one for the rest of her life. Moving right along into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. But before I do, let me mention that, you know, as in each season before this one, there will always be an unsolved homicide that needs attention. 
that will be discussed, that will be profiled. Believe it or not, every person that gets killed in Baltimore or in Maryland in particular, you know, they don't always make the news. They don't always receive the type of media attention or media coverage at all. I mean, most of these cases don't make Murder, Inc. They don't make Fox 45. They don't make WBAL or nothing like that. It's more like a person gets killed and that's pretty much it. It was like, you know, one minute the victim was here, the next minute they wasn't. And the victim's family is just expected to just pick up where they left off, move on with their lives like nothing ever happened, and basically just hope for the best. And to make matters worse, in some of the cases, the friends or the family of the victim, they actually know who killed their loved one. They actually know who did it, but they don't have the proof. You know, they don't have the proof that the detectives need to build a solid case that gets a person convicted. They don't have enough because especially not in, you know, certain juries, they need the evidence and the proof to see that. And they don't have that. But they still feel stuck because they still don't know what happened and why. I mean, but guess what? I feel you. I mean, on this podcast, we give attention to not only high-profile, gruesome, notable homicide cases in Maryland, but a focus is also on unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention that they deserved, or unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was done because the victim lived a certain type of lifestyle, or they lived this type of way or whatever, or they did whatever in their personal time, or you know, they did this, so maybe they had it coming. The family still deserves to know what happened and why. I mean, come on now. The family still deserves justice. So, with that being said, this episode's Unsolved Homicide is the shooting murder of 21-year-old Anna Isabel Racine. Sometimes I think the whole state of Maryland is just cursed. I mean, I ain't even gonna lie. You know... You, you can live somewhere like South, like in North Carolina, <laughs> South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida. And as soon as you set foot in Baltimore or Maryland, <laughs> you become a statistic. It's, it's like the mentality of the killers here, the I don't give a fuck type of attitude, it's the just fuck it. <laughs> 21-year-old Anna Isabel Racine, although she grew up in Maryland, in the two years before she was killed, she lived with her boyfriend in Georgia. On January 25th, 2014, she made it all the way up to Pasadena, Rivera Beach, to visit her family and friends. Shortly after midnight, she went to visit a male friend in the 200 block of Meadow Road in Rivera Beach, Pasadena. Within hours of arriving here in Maryland, she would be shot dead in the driveway of a home in the same block. After meeting up with the friend, with the male friend, she and the friend were accosted by two subjects who attacked them both and ended up shooting Anna. Almost half a dozen of the neighbors called 911 and reported to police that they heard gunshots and saw a dark colored minivan speeding off seconds later. Anna who was from the 200 block of Quiet Ridge Court, was pronounced dead at the scene 
and became Anne Arundel County's first homicide of 2014. Although there were other people there at the home at the time, Anna was shot. De detectives have no clues and they admit that they don't know if Anna was the intended target of the shooter or if her male friend was the intended target. A motive was also not known. The detectives also admit that Anna's boyfriend in Georgia had a clear alibi and was not considered a suspect in Anna's murder. The Anne Arundel County Police Department released a statement that read, Those at the scene have cooperated with police and there is no evidence indicating that anyone there was involved at all. And this is basically all that they have. Nothing else. So y'all already know what's coming. Because this was an Anne Arundel County case, the cold case number is different from the usual cold case number that I usually provide y'all. But if you have any information, anything that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, you have two options. You can reach detectives at 410-222-4700 or you can reach them at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Once again, the Anne Arundel County Cold Case Police Department is 410-222-4700. You can also reach them at Metro Crime Stoppers with an S at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can remain anonymous, people. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited, unedited truth of why I do what I do. I mean, how I got into true crime, why I started writing books about true crime and why I ultimately started a true crime podcast. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and then boom, I'm, in, I'm into death. I'm into gore and blood and murder. And, but that is hardly the case. There is a full-blown method to all of this madness. Trust me, this was no overnight, no overnight gimmick. No overnight just, you know, just trying to put something together. You know, also be sure to pay a visit to the new website, www.MerlinsMostNotoriousMurders.com. And Merlin is spelled MDS, mostnotoriousmurders.com, where you can get immediate access to all of the previous release episodes to date from season one to the present. The website also has direct links to the books that are related to this podcast entitled Merlin's Most Notorious Murders from 1990 to 2008 and Merlin's Unsolved Homicides Volume 1. You can also check out links to my other local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which is a book that every woman should have, as well as Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week, where another high-profile, another gruesome, another hair-raising, eye-popping homicide will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been 
a Savage Life production.